Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, I hope everybody's having a good week. I put this poll out and I'm sorry if I sound, my voice sounds bad. I have a, a cold. I'm getting over a cold. So my voice is not great right now, but I felt like I had to talk about this. I have a poll out that talks about debt. This has been a subject that comes up inevitably with personal finance. Now, a lot of people have noticed that with my portfolio, the way that I fund it is I put $2,000 a month in it. And I do that without a drastic strain on my lifestyle, right? So it requires budgeting, requires discipline, but it's not like I'm, you know, I, I still have a house. I still have food. I still have all the things I need. Now, a lot of people say, well, Joseph, that's because you know, that's because you started a YouTube channel, right? And you got that all that YouTube income, right? You got YouTubers showing off all the money that they're making. First of all, most YouTubers are making like a video every every eight hours. So I come out with one mostly once a week. I don't think that my income is nearly as high as the numbers that you're seeing. But regardless, I put $2,000 a month in for a year straight before starting YouTube. So that doesn't play into this $2,000 a month. The reason that I'm able to put $2,000 a month is because of debt. That's the reason why. The reason why specifically is because of the lack of debt. I don't have any consumer debt. I have a very low mortgage where the home I own, when I first purchased it, I owned 40% of it up front. That's how much I paid down on it. So my mortgage is very cheap. So it's less than the average cost of rent around my area, but it's a, a pretty large home. Now that's put me in a situation because of the lack of debt, because of the low cost of living, even with two kids and a wife, I'm able to deposit $2,000 a month into this portfolio. So having said all of that, I thought it would be worthwhile to talk a little bit about debt, how that plays into investing. Because this whole thing right here, being able to fund this, being able to build what is it actually a substantial dividend portfolio is reliant on you being able to fund it. If you can't put any money into this, if you're wrapped into debt up to your eyeballs, you're not going to be able to put any money into this. So I thought it would be worth it to talk about. I mean, this is a big part of, of building a portfolio is setting up your life in a way where you avoid the, the typical pitfalls that prevent people from being able to accumulate valuable assets to pay them money. If you have no free cash flow in your budget, if you have no income that comes in that doesn't get eaten up by some monthly payment, then there's no way you're going to be able to contribute to a portfolio. So I think that debt is an important subject to talk about. Before going into the main thing, I want to just back up a little bit and talk about how we got here. How are so many people in debt? How are so many people dependent on loans? And now they have these, these large loans overweighing them, putting financial pressure on them, causing a lot of anxiety. We read all sorts of things now about how debt is consuming people's lives. It's a huge part of their life. They always have that payment to pay off every single month. Debt has become a huge problem in the U.S. I want to highlight a clip here from Hasan Minhaj. Uh, he's speaking before Congress. He's a comedian. He's the host of the Netflix uh, Patriot Act show. So I'll highlight a few clips of this because I think he brings up some good points here. I'm 33, and growing up, it was drilled into our heads. You gotta go to college if you want a middle-class job. And we even tell kids today, look, if you don't go to college, you might as well get a face tattoo. And then they point to Post Malone, and we're like, okay, that's one guy. He's a very popular musician. (laughs) 
there he's joking. If you don't go to college, you may as well get a face tattoo. Now, it's easy to say that's an exaggeration if you're just looking at things currently. Because right now we know, you know, there, there's a lot more education regarding college and getting the most out of the money, going to cheaper schools, being smart about finances. But 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the consensus of thought was not the same. The idea was you go to college, you get a bachelor's degree, you land a well-paying job that can support a family, and you do that with absolutely no debt or very minimal debt that can be paid back in a year or two. That was the viewpoint that millennials, people in my age, being 30 years old, you know, that was a viewpoint that we were sold, that college was this ticket to success. There wasn't any problem with it. Just go to the best school, get the best education, and you'll be okay because now you have a bachelor's degree or whatever degree you get, and you'll be able to pay for everything with a good, stable career. You'll have a pension, retirement, and all those things set up for you. So what was almost sold to people 20 years ago growing up has not come to flourishing. Things have changed drastically, and the major thing that has changed is the price of college. On average, this entire committee graduated from college 33 years ago and paid an inflation-adjusted tuition of $11,690 a year. Today, the average tuition at all of your same schools is almost $25,000. That's a 110% increase over a period of time when wages have gone up only 16%. So... People aren't making more money, and college is objectively way more expensive. So colleges have become a lot more expensive over the years, not just Ivy League colleges that these Congress people went to, but every college across the board has inflated their prices drastically over the past 20 years. And of course, you can see the result of this. This is just a, a simple timeline from 2006. So this isn't from the 1920s. You know, this isn't some super old graph. This is from 2006. It started at $480 billion, and then every single year, every single year, year over year, you can see the consistency of growth in this number. Right now, it stands at $1.63 trillion. That's the amount of student loan debt outstanding in the U.S. So this is growing drastically every single year. Students are finding themselves in terrible situations where they have debt for 10, 20 plus years hanging over them, and they don't know how to deal with it. And the frustrating part of this whole thing is how everybody involved, everybody involved in this whole circle has targeted the student as the client, the thing to be taken advantage of. You have banks that gladly give student loans, knowing that they get a good return on them. They get a 6%, 7% return on them on a loan that they can't even bankrupt out of. So if you have a student loan, you can't just say, hey, this isn't worth it. I'd rather just destroy my credit and bankrupt out of this a massive amount of debt. No, they don't let you do that. So you have this money hanging over you, you owe the banks that money, and then you have the colleges taking advantage of the situation by inflating their tuition, far outpacing your pay. So colleges say, hey, this pool of students, they're capitalized. They're like a business that has a line to capital. We know that they have access to as much money as they want, essentially as much money as they want from the banks. So what we're going to do is we're going to raise our tuition year over year over year, and students are going to continue to pay it because they have no other option, right? We've made college the only way to have a well-paying job so we can charge whatever we want. They have a line of capital that they can pay us and we take advantage of that. So every group centered around this has made students the target, the thing to take advantage of, to put them in situations where they're indebted to others for 10, 20 years of their life. Now, a few other things that I want to highlight 
as long as I'm going on this uh, this rant of, of things that are wrong, right? So I promise I'll get to some solutions here soon. But I want to highlight more of this problem and, and some of the things that I think it's causing. So one of them is birth rates are falling in the U.S. For the first time, people are having less and less children, which is an interesting thing to say. Because if you went and asked random people, just average people that are usually at the age when they start to have kids and start to grow a family, why they're not having kids, it's almost always financially related. They say kids are expensive. They, they cost money. I don't have enough money, right? That is the, the big reason, self-reportedly, list off of the reason that they're not having kids. We have the wealth by generation. If you look at this graph, it has four different lines. One of them, you have the silent generation. This is a, a very old generation. So, you know, the wealth is going down as they reach old age and die off from old age. You have boomers, which control the huge majority of wealth right now. You have Gen X, which has a growing amount of wealth. And then you have millennials, purple line on there. It almost looks like the horizontal axis line. It's so flat. It's so steadily flat that you almost might mistake it for just being the horizontal axis there. But really, that is the amount of wealth that millennials have in comparison. It's barely nudged above zero in the past five years. So generational wealth, millennials are not sharing into that amount of wealth. A lot of millennials find themselves having a negative net worth. They owe more than their present value of assets. Now, what I did is I I wanted to compare just overall trends compared to the viewership of my channel, you know, the the subscribers and the people that view this type of content. And of course, as you would suspect, it's drastically different in the results. So the amount of people that view my channel, 59% of them have no debt. So no debt, 59%. One to $10,000 in debt, we have 19%. 11 to $50,000 in debt, we have 17%. 51 to 100, we have 3%, and over $100,000, we have 3%. I will say a couple things that could throw some bias into this poll is one of them, obviously, the people that are attracted to this type of content are people that are minding their financial business, people that are intentional with their finances, they're looking to grow their wealth. So obviously, that is going to substantially bias this poll. Another thing I'll mention is that over 30% of the viewers are outside of the US, which a lot of different countries have more socialized policies where you know you don't have to pay for school. They increase taxes to afford it. So you know there, there's a trade-off there, but regardless, they usually don't have as much debt that they carry. And that's another thing to keep in mind, which might contribute to that no debt being at 59%. But regardless, this is motivating to see. A lot of people in good financial situation here, a lot of people with a bearable amount of debt that they will be able to pay off over the coming years, and the people that have $100,000 plus in debt. A lot of these people do have doctorates, you know, they're lawyers, they're, they're people that have high incomes where they can manage this amount of debt far easier than somebody making $40,000 a year. But there are some people that have a significant amount of debt that also have a relatively average paying job. So those are the people that are in the most difficult situation. Now on this poll, we had over 200 comments. So I went through and read every single one of them. What I did was I selected some that I want to highlight because I think it's interesting to just view some of the situations people are in, some of the the different choices people have made that have led them to different outcomes. I think it's interesting to look at that. And these are right from the viewers, the other people watching this video. So we have Ryan, he says, I was kind of impressed how many people were debt free. Then I realized these type of channels generally attract financially smart people. So that is, I think, the, the most significant bias in this poll. Fade it, Lou. He says, 19 years old, no debt, $22,000 net worth. Starting barber school August 4th, paid off tuition and cash, around $12,000 invested. Fade it, Lou is, is killing it. If you have $22,000 net worth, you're already into investing when you're 19 years old and you're going to a trade that is going to be 
an inexpensive trade to learn, but something that can be a career that you can do, that you can have positive income, not having to manage debt for the next 20 years, you are in a great situation. So keep that up, Lou. We have David. He says 24 years old, making $50,000 a year, investing half of it around $2,000 every month in dividend paying stocks. Uh, I want to highlight that right there. He's making 50000 a year and investing $2,000 every month. That's interesting because $2,000 a month is the amount that I invest, okay? There's lots of people. If you read financial forms, there's lots of people that are making median household income, fifty dollars to $70,000, that are investing $2,000 plus a month. So the, the biggest factor in this that I want to highlight is the biggest thing that determines how much you can invest is the difference between your cost of living and the amount of your income. So whether that's your cost of living is really low and your income is, you know, medium or your cost of living is medium and your income is really high, that's the difference. That shows how much you can invest. Right now, David has a a pretty good income, $50,000 a year. But the big thing here is he has no debt. He says no car, $800 a month in rent, everything included, waiting for that snowball to get bigger. So David is in a situation where even though he's making, you know, the median household income in the U.S. is like 65000 So a lot of those are are two people working in the household. But regardless, he's making the median household income in the U.S. and he's investing $2,000 a month. He's going to accumulate a large amount of assets very fast if he continues doing that. So I wanted to highlight this one. If you rearrange your finances and are really intentional about what you're doing, you can build up investments as well. Blake says, I have $37,000 of loans. 30,000 of that is in student loans. It was 65,000. $7,000 is in a car loan zero credit card debt, pay that off every month, paying off my student loans at 600 to $800 per paycheck. It was worth it. I'm making good money. I went to a technical trade instead of a useless degree. Now, Blake here highlights something interesting. So, so far in this video, I've highlighted a lot of problems with debt, the, the, the growing amount of debt people have, how hampering this is to people's lifestyle. They're stopping having children. They're stopping moving into homes. You know, they're having uh, uh, marital problems. People are getting divorced over financial issues. Debt plays into all of that. He says, I went to a technical trade instead of a useless degree. So you can paint things with broad strokes here. I don't want to do that. I think the most important thing is that everybody gets an education. You can't go far if you're not educated. If you don't provide value to companies. So you need to seek an education. Now, college is not the only place that exclusively holds educations. So there's other methods to become educated in specific fields. Uh, With technology, there's all sorts of places to become educated online. College does not hold a monopoly on technology education. And that is something that is a a huge growing field that pays really well. There's some places where definitely college degrees are not useless. If you want to go into medicine, if you want to practice law, you want to get far in accounting, you're going to need some formal education with a college degree. So, you know, there's situations where a college degree is absolutely worth it. It gets you into a job that's a well-paying, stable field. And there's other times where people are paying enormous amounts of money on education, on th- subjects that they could have obtained by working in the private sector, learning on the job. So you need to look at this. Whenever you're going and seeking an education, you want to get the most bang for your buck. Look at the school that is going to give you the best return on how much money you're spending, how much time you're spending. You want to get the best return just as if you're investing in a company. So that is the way people should view it. That's not the way that students have been viewing it. They've just been saying, I'm just going to go to the best rated college, the the most esteemed one, regardless of the price. A lot of times that has put people in really terrible situations. Speaking of people in tougher situations, we have Digital here who says, I have $40,000 in student debt and work a job that requires a GED. So 
this is one of those tough situations some people find themselves in where they went to college and, and got some degree, you know, or they spent money, other people's money. So it's loans that they're getting. And then they come in the workforce and it doesn't pan out. They don't get the same salary or the same job that they envisioned. And now they're working a job that requires less education when they have the loans and debts as if they're supposed to be making a lot more money. So all I'll say in these situations is digital for people, you know, you're working a job that requires a GED, hang in there. Situations do change. People's financial situations do change. So I do not believe you'll be working a job that requires a GED your entire life. That's rarely the situation. If you keep seeking education, even free forms of education, if you have an internet connection, you can learn a lot about things that can bring value to employers. So just keep at it and you'll improve your income. Then you'll be able to tackle the $40,000 of debt a lot easier than a job that requires a GED. We have a few more I want to highlight. We have the unit saying went from $70,000 in debt down to 19,000 in 2 years. Once I pay this 19,000 off, I can't wait to dump most of that money into my dividend portfolio. Uh, based off your payoff rate, you're going to be there less than a year. So it's going to be round the corner until you have that debt behind you. So keep up with that. This also shows you can pay off debt aggressively if it's your main focus. So if you just tackle the debt, you can pay it off aggressively. Once you have it paid off, it makes it so much easier to invest too. That's the big reason why I'm able to put this money into my portfolio. I don't have these car payments. I don't have school loans. So I'm able to put a significant chunk of my cash flow into my dividend portfolio. Now we have Lawrence saying, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. It has served me well. Now I'm retired and can live nicely on my dividend portfolio. Staying out of debt all my life, except for my home mortgage, which I kept small and paid off early, really works. So Lawrence made a lot of smart financial decisions. Part of that, if you are just tackling debt and that's something that you're aggressively trying to do dave ramsey is great for that so it gives you a lot of motivation it gets you pumped up you listen to people that just get out of debt you know every episode he has people that are doing their debt free scream and it's a motivating thing it gives you hope that it's possible and it makes it more exciting to do so i suggest people that are that's their main focus to turn on dave ramsey and listen to that his investing advice there's a lot uh you know there's, there's a lot of other thoughts on his investing advice but his get out of debt portion which is the main part of his show i think is is very motivating this next comment's a good one. Sean says, I'm working on getting rid of my debt. A large portion of it is my truck, which I'm about to put up for sale. $560 a month truck payment is just dumb. I don't know what I was thinking. So Sean, this is, yeah, this is a big problem. So, so far I've been highlighting mostly school debt, which obviously is a big problem for people that did not get the job they were expecting. You know, they, they spent more on their education and now they don't have the income to, to go back and pay that back. So, but Aside from that, I would say that cars, vehicles are the next thing that are the biggest hurdle to people's wealth. So getting these $500, $600 a month payments every single month is insane. The car companies know this too. They're not selling you cars. They're not selling you trucks. They're selling you loans. The way that they advertise them isn't even a a total amount. They don't say, hey, you can buy this car for $32,000. They say $500 a month. Come and qualify. $500 a month, $600 a month, only $300 a month for this car. The amount of interest that you're going to be paying, who knows? When in reality, you go to buy one of them and they make you buy it through a loan. In fact, my dad went the last car that he bought. He went to the dealership. This is a Honda dealership. He told them, I want to buy this car. I can write a check right now to buy it. So I can write a check for the total amount. You can cash it and then I want to drive away with it. They would not let him do that. They do not make money. The dealership does not make money from selling you cars in cash. The way that the dealership makes money is they give you a loan. So you have to take out a loan for the vehicle, even if you have cash, and then they sell the loan to the bank and they make money selling that loan to the bank. And then the bank makes money 
on the interest of that loan from you. The whole product being sold is a loan. It's not a car. And the, the fact that confirms that is they would not let him buy it in cash. He talked to three people there. They would not let him buy it in cash. They made him take out a loan. They sold the loan to the bank. And then they said, after the loan goes to the bank, you can pay off the total amount. So that's what he did. A month later, he just said, okay, and paid off the total amount from the bank. So the bank was the one that got the short end of that stick. They bought a loan thinking they're going to make this much interest on it. And then they had the total amount paid off the next day. So this is a problem. People don't realize that the whole reason they're selling vehicles is so that they can get you indebted for the next six years. The money is not in buying vehicles in cash. It's selling loans. I'll do one more comment. Craig says law school slash undergrad debt, well over $100,000 in debt, just shy of $300,000. Personal debt of $22,000. Not exactly worried about the student loan because after a while I'll be able to properly attack it and pay it off. The personal debt will be gone after this year. So this is a situation where Craig has an enormous amount of debt that does contribute to that large number, the $1.6 trillion of outstanding debt. Uh, Part of the problem with that statistic is it includes people like Craig, that have a large amount of debt, but they're also surgeons, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're people that can demand hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and they can properly service that debt. So some of it looks more inflated than it is. Some of the people are the people that have the GED and $40,000 of debt are not in good situations. But other people are like Craig, even though they have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, they are going to have the education and the expertise to be able to pay that back. So the education they get was worth the amount of money that they went into debt. So he says after a while, he'd be able to properly attack it and pay that off. So I believe him on that. I think that he's probably in a decent situation. Now, reading through all those comments, it's clear to see that debt is a double-edged sword. It can be used against you, which a lot of people find themselves in that situation, but you can also use it to your advantage. 20% of my portfolio is in bonds. This is debt. This is money that I've loaned out to other people, either the U.S. government, European companies, or U.S. companies. And in turn, they pay me back with interest every single month. That's what these ETFs are. I can see so far, I've earned $1,238 back. That's with $14,000 is where it stands right now. But I started with a smaller amount. I built up these holdings. And now they pay me money consistently every single month. So this is debt being used where I'm on the side where I'm earning the interest. This is the side that you want to be on. You want to be on the side where every single month you're earning that interest month over month. You have the compounding effect working for you. You want to be on the side where you own the finance companies, where you own JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, you know, Toronto Dominion, where you own these banks that are loaning out money to other people and earning interest off of them. You don't want to be on the side where you're continually paying these banks interest that they in turn feed out as dividends to their shareholders. So this is my attempt to move on the side where I'm earning interest not paying it. I look at the student loan debt. I've showed this graph before, and it's insane the amount of school debt that we're in right now. And you might be one of the lucky ones. You might say, hey, well, I I paid off all my student loans. You know, now I'm working. I have a great job. I'm in a good situation. But you know what? I have a a pretty bad drive to work. I don't like my commute. I have a beater. So I think I want to buy a uh, $50,000 truck. I want to have a $500 a month payment. I don't exactly have $50,000 sitting around. So what I'm going to do is take the bank's money and just tack on a 500 to $700 payment a month. That is what a lot of people are doing now. The banks know if they can't get you with student loans, what they'll do is they'll entice you with vehicles that you can't afford. So they'll give you expensive vehicles, they wrap them up in monthly payments, and then we have graphs like this right here, which is the auto loans outstanding. Look at this. Since the 1990s to now, we're up to $1.2 trillion in outstanding auto loan debt. This is insane. This type of stuff destroys future finances. 
taking on $500, $700 a month payments eats out any amount that you can put into portfolios like this. If you want to be working for the banks for the rest of your life, take out car loans that are $600 a month. That's the way to do it. That way you can make sure that banks like this can continue to pay shareholders like me. So you got to make a decision there. Do you want to drive the nice, comfortable vehicle and continually be driving that vehicle to work so you can work for the banks? Or do you want to have the banks work for you? Do you want to have ownership in them and be on the side where you're continually being fed dividends over and over again that can further your wealth? So obviously in every one of these scenarios, there's people that use debt wisely. There's people that took out student loans. That it was a smart situation. They did it responsibly. You know, they've bettered their life. There's people that took out auto loans that were, you know, a reasonable amount that got them a car, a vehicle that was safe and, and, you know, it served its purpose, but there's a lot of excess here. There's a lot of people that take out more than they need in both situations with auto loans, with school loans, a lot of excess lending going on there. And I know to a lot of you listening, I'm preaching to the choir here. We got 60% of viewership saying that they have no debt. So a lot of you are nodding along, but to people outside of this, this isn't the case. A lot of people do not know how destructive it is to take out debt, right? To get into auto loans, to get into excessive school loans. They're putting themselves in really difficult situations. So if you can help anybody, if you have any influence of anybody that is, you know, talking about getting a new car, right? And they're going to get this expensive truck or this really expensive vehicle, talk some sense into them. Talk to your friends. Share this video with them. Do anything to try to convince them of something that will not drastically be detrimental to their future finances. Anyway, that's my big rant on debt for now. I'm going to save the whole news, everything that's been going on. I'm going to save that for the weekend. So I'll be talking more about news in the weekend. But I want to jump into some questions here. Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. That is Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. You can also message me on Twitter or Instagram. The first one is from Joseph. So this is, this is a different Joseph. I didn't write myself on Twitter. Uh, he says, Hey Joseph, great name, by the way, I started watching a few of your YouTube videos on dividend growth portfolio series and love it currently in medical school. So I have very limited time to dedicate to learning, investing and finance. I actually did read the intelligent investor and found it to be really helpful and logical. If anything, it made me realize that unless you can do this full time, you should really have a defensive approach. I was wondering what your thoughts were regarding investing in a couple dividend paying mutual funds through a bank, uh, a Canadian bank, especially because the MER one to 2% on the funds. Okay, Joseph. Now that is a great name. So I might be a little biased, but I think you have a great name. So medical school, you're not going to have a lot of time to do anything else. I have a, a, I've seen at least from the sidelines, I have a brother that, that went to medical school. Seems like it keeps you pretty busy just doing that. So it's an amazing thing to accomplish going through that. Unfortunately, what happens, I think a lot of the time is doctors spend so much time studying medicine. You know, that's where all their energy, their passion is, is serving other people and studying medicine that it doesn't leave them a lot of time to study anything else like finance. And so it puts them in a situation where all of a sudden they're earning these, these large salaries, right? And they know the basics about money, but they don't know a whole lot about investing. So even though they have an incredibly high income, the money just flows into the checking account. It flows out of the checking account. They, they get lifestyle creep, high expenses. And as soon as that money comes in, it leaves. So you have doctors that could be multi, multi-millionaires. They learned how to invest instead, always counting on future income. So the fact that you're already interested in this while you're going through medical school means once you get out of it, you'll already know what to do. So that's a good situation to be in. As far as your specific question on investing in dividend paying mutual funds through the bank Canada, especially of a MER. So that's a management expense ratio of one to 2% on the funds. I think that's a little high. You know, I do not like paying fees. I don't care if they're 1% or 2%. 
I would rather not pay those fees. The 1% to 2% that you pay is money guaranteed that you're getting taken out of your pocket. So every year you're paying that money, whether or not those funds perform, whether they go up or down in value, the economy could go down and your portfolio could go down 10% and you'd still pay those fees on top of it. So you would lose 12% in that case. So if you gain 4%, you've really only gained 2% if you're paying a 2% fee. So these fees really eat away at your gains over a long period of time. I'd much rather you go into some low cost ETFs. If you want to focus on dividend ETFs, which obviously I have a bias towards, I would pick different ETFs. Some of them Vanguard offers like VYM, where they specifically gather different companies that all pay dividends and that all have a track record, good cash flow to be able to support it. They put it into one fund and the expense ratio is like 0.08. So not even close to one to 2%. So that's what I would go for. Low cost ETFs, get rid of those fees, the one to 2%, that's going to eat away at your returns. The Red Turtle says, hey, Joseph, I just listened to your discussion about the national debt. It's a flawed notion that the U.S. government has to pay down the debt eventually. And your comparison to a family budget is one of the most irksome analogies that economists hear. To still a phrase from Sloan Sabbath, balancing your checkbook is to balancing the budget as driving a car to the supermarket is to landing on the moon. Yes, Americans should be concerned about the national debt. But not for the reasons that you mentioned. It gets very technical, but basically the takeaway for anybody reading this is that the average, say over five years plus economic growth should outpace the growth of the national debt. That's the metric to look for. GDP is a decent measure here, but a cursory look into the literature revealed it's a flawed measure. Okay, Red Turtle. So I appreciate the comment. Uh, Having said that, I disagree. I don't think that anything that I said in the previous video was wrong. After reading this and hearing your argument, I don't think that it shows any flaw in the comparison that I made in the previous video or anything that I said in that comment. So what I did for people that don't know what I'm talking about is the last comment of the previous video, the last question. But what I did was I related the U.S. economy to a household budget in one sense. You know, there there are two different things, obviously. The U.S. economy is much more complex than a household budget. I understand that. But what I did was I compared one aspect of it, that whether you're a household or the U.S. economy, you cannot continually spend more money than you produce in value indefinitely. That that is something that is completely unsustainable. So it doesn't matter the scale in which you do it. It's an economic principle that can't be ignored. So you say the comparison to the family budget is one of the most irksome analogies that economists hear. Uh, I don't care if it's irksome to economists. I think it's irksome that people try to defend this saying, because the U.S. economy is so vast, so massive, so complex, you know, we have the, the Fed, we have a reserve currency, we have the ability to print money, you know, because it has all these aspects, it just doesn't need to follow basic economic principles. You can just throw those right out the window. I find that irksome. So further on, you say, to still a phrase from Sloan Sabbath, balancing your checkbook is to balancing the budget as driving, a, as driving your car to the supermarket is to landing on the moon. I read that and I actually agree with it. I had to look up who Sloan Sabbath was. It turns out he's a, a fictional TV character. But regardless, I agree with this phrase. I think that this statement works more in favor of what I'm saying than against it. So it shows that regardless of what you're doing, whether you're driving a car around planet Earth or you're doing something far more complex, like putting a spaceship to the moon, both of them follow the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics. Both of them have to follow math. There's basic rules that both of them follow regardless of the specific situations. So you're not going to go and hear somebody from NASA say, oh, you know what? 
this is so much more complex than driving a car around that we just throw out the laws of uh, thermodynamics, you know, that stuff, mass, motion, energy, velocity, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah, we don't use any of that. This is way more complex. You wouldn't really understand. So, you know, I don't even like the analogy between that and driving a car around. Of course they use all that stuff. They have to be more precise with it. So this just highlights what I'm saying, that even though something that is infinitively more complex, it still has to work within the same rules. Now, in the last part, maybe I didn't make myself clear in the last video. So what you're saying essentially is exactly the point that I was making. You're saying anybody reading this is that the average, say over a five-year period, economic growth, i.e. the production, the, the, the value you're creating, should outpace the growth of the national debt, i.e. spending, consumption, right? The, the thing that you're not producing, now you're spending that money. That's the metric to look for. So this is exactly what I was saying. I don't disagree with any of that. The point I was making is that the U.S. government is spending, taking on more debt, raising the debt ceiling over and over again faster than the U.S. economy is growing. The U.S. economy is the government's ability to pay back its debtors. So the government takes money from taxes. Taxes are paid by U.S. citizens, the U.S. economy. If the U.S. economy is growing at a slower rate than the government is taking on new debt, that is by definition unsustainable. I relate it again to my personal finances. Let's look at my finances here. If I have my family budget, let's say that I can grow my income 5% a year, right? So I'm really consistent at growing my income 5% a year, but I'm spending 10% more a year. I'd be able to do that for a long time, right? I have good credit. I have people that would lend to me, that continue to lend to me. Even if I started getting in debt, I'd be able to service old debt, continue doing that, but I can't do it indefinitely. At a certain point, that debt to income ratio is going to become so skewed that I cannot continue to pay it back. So that is the comparison that I'm making is that right now we're not on a sustainable path. And people almost get upset when I highlight this, right? They get upset saying, oh, it's different. The economy is different. You're comparing it to a household budget. This is a totally different thing. I'm not alone in this. Jerome Pellis said the same thing. Let's watch a clip from it. What's the impact uh, in your thinking of uh, high levels of government debt to GDP? We know since the Great Recession, the, con the household sector is deleveraged. Corporate debt is higher, which is something we watch. But government debt to GDP is dramatically higher, and the present value of unfunded entitlements is now $54 trillion. How does that affect your thinking about monetary policy and our job at the Federal Reserve? So let me say that... The U.S. Uh, is on an unsustainable f uh, fiscal path. That has been true for a long time. That is associated with... He says it right there. The U.S. is on an unsustainable path. That has been true for a long time. The reason that we're on an unsustainable path is because the U.S. government is outspending the U.S. economy, which is a thing that can support that spending. So, so that's the point that I'm making. I'm pretty much restating what Jerome Powell is saying. I don't care how big or complex the economy is. If they have the ability to print money, it doesn't matter. If you spend more money than the value that you produce to be able to back up that spending, that's completely unsustainable. That's what I'm saying here. Laura says, hi, Joseph. My name is Laura, 45 years old and divorced in 2018. For the past three months, I started watching YouTube videos on how to build a retirement plan for myself. Two weeks ago, I accidentally, blessed, tapped on one of your videos. I was hooked up since then. Very impressed on how clear and understandable the information is laid out by you. Love it. My question is, I'm supposed to get half of my ex-husband's retirement 401k that is invested in Vanguard by his employer, about thirty dollars to $40,000. Can I roll it to my new open M1 Roth IRA? Any educational advice would be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance. 
So I believe that you will be able to roll it over to a Roth IRA. I believe you'll be able to do that, but you'll have to pay taxes on it. So you have to pay taxes on the income because the government's not going to let you have uh, no pre-tax as well as no post-tax. So they're going to force you to pay taxes. If you're working right now and your employer does offer a 401k, I would just roll it into that and then just keep it without paying any taxes. So that way you'll have it as a standard 401k. You can keep contributing to it while you're working until you retire. So if you don't have work or you're not working at all, you don't have a 401k provider to put it in, then you could roll it over to a Roth IRA. So the people I'd contact to do that is the M1 finance team. They have teams that help you do those type of conversions and rollovers and all that type of stuff. So they'll be able to answer more questions with that. But either way, I would keep that retirement account, keep adding to it. You're only 45 years old. You have a long time before you're reaching retirement age. If you keep consistent on it, you're going to have a pretty good retirement. All right, guys, that's going to be it for me today. Uh, my voice, I'm having a hard time even talking anymore with this stupid cold. So hopefully by this weekend, I'll have this cold behind me. I'll be able to do a full episode, be able to talk a lot about the news. There's a lot of things going on that I want to talk about, but I want to wait till I have this stupid cold behind me. It's hard to even talk anymore. So anyway, I'll uh, see you guys this weekend. If you want to check out more videos, you can hit the subscribe button. Otherwise, I'll talk to you guys soon.